We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As part of our inquiry into the nature of monopoly, Jordan, Noor, and myself decided to take a little trip. It's kind of overwhelming. Like yeah. seven floors? Is well, this an apartment building? Like, that, that, this one is different. Most bays are not like this. Most Hudson Bays are not like this. We were at the corner of Queen and Young in downtown Toronto to visit one of the flagship locations of the Hudson's Bay Company. I don't remember the bay being this fancy because it was the place that like bookended the mall. It was like there was one end of the mall that was Sears. There was one end of the mall that was Hudson's Bay. You just walked through it to get to the stores you were trying to get to. You know, like that's my memory of Hudson's Bay. My dad's first job actually when he got to Canada was as a janitor at the bay in downtown Vancouver. But it was not this fancy back then. I mean, I think. And we went to the Hudson's Bay store for a few reasons. Most importantly, that's what this episode is about, the HBC, one of Canada's first monopolies, and it's one that's shaped this country more than any other. But also, I wanted to get a look at the modern incarnation of that most recognizable symbol of that monopoly, the point blanket. I just want to know how much the goddamn point blanket costs. Yeah, let's find out. Most Canadians would be able to easily recognize the green, red, yellow, and blue bands of color that characterize the blanket. Yeah, but I could see those like stripes anywhere, and I would recognize it. No, the stripes are iconic, because even I recognize them, and I've only been here for a little while. And they've come to mean many, many things to many people. For some, it's all comfort in cottages. And for others, it's a reminder of the country's colonial past and present. And even though I understood the sordid history that lay behind this symbol, there was a part of me that was interested. Is it wrong that I want one? Like, I don't know if I would buy one. I don't know if I'd want to be seen with one in my home. But I kind of want it. I think that just the part of me that's obsessed with, like, kind of Canada and Canadiana really is drawn to this, regardless of what it's a symbol of, you know? (laughs) After wandering through the immense maze that is the downtown Toronto Hudson's Bay, we eventually found what we were looking for. This looks like prime blanket territory, folks. Yeah. I mean, this is where they're leaning more into the Canadian stuff, too. They have the canoe. Oh, and you can see, like, look at all these socks, like all these branded kind of items. Oh, my God. This blanket's $550. Wow. King size, but $550. It comes with a bag, too. Well, that's fine. I mean, for 450 bucks, it they better, better fucking a come bag. with a bag. Yeah. <laughs> that was about 400 more than I was willing to pay. But even if it was more affordable, I probably wouldn't have bought it. But I think what was attracting me to it was just how strange all of it is. Not just the blanket, but the Hudson's Bay Company itself. This department store where people go today to buy perfume or watches or jeans, is one of the primary forces that shaped Canada's history. And what makes it important for our purposes today 
is that for hundreds of years, the Hudson's Bay Company was a monopoly, on paper at least. So if we're going to be exploring whether or not there's something distinct about Canada that lends itself to monopolies, this is the best place to start. And so on this episode, we're going back more than 350 years. Because the story of the Hudson's Bay Company is much weirder and more relevant than what you might have been taught in middle school. Now, if you grew up in Canada, you almost certainly learned about the main characters in this story. There's a lot of words you could use to describe them. Enterprising, industrious, glamorous. I'm, of course, talking about the mighty beaver. That, strangely enough, is the sound a beaver makes, apparently. Now, that splendid cry may not compel you to venture into the wilderness in search of beaver pelts, but in the 1600s, Europeans were obsessed with beavers. Their pelts were waterproof, perfect for making all the various hats that Europeans loved to wear so that they could impress everyone by looking like fancy men and women. Beavers, of course, had been hunted to extinction in Europe. Some were coming from Russia, uh, but that, of course, was long and expensive. That's Stephen Bound. He's the author of The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. Now, there were a few beaver pelts that were making their way to Europe from North America via French Canada. Obviously, the British would have loved to be competing against France or undercutting their commerce somehow. These two nations, France and England, were always at each other's throats, particularly at that time. Two French fur traders, Radisson and Grosselier, decided to leave the relative comfort of the St. Lawrence Valley and see what lay much further inland. And what they found would change history. Yes, there were, of course, millions of beavers. But there was also something much more significant. There was a pre-existing massive trade network with its hub in this region that seemed to have spokes that stretched off to the north and the west and the south, and all the goods were somehow coming to this area. They also noted specifically that this area had no metal items. So the one item that was missing from this melange of trade goods was, was anything made of metal. And they had the idea that if you could somehow tap into this pre-existing trade network, that could be enormously valuable. So they made a pitch to their French masters. They could set up some trading posts on Hudson's Bay and trade metal goods for beaver pelts. But the French had no interest, so the two fur traders did the reasonable thing and went to their sworn enemy, the British King Charles. King Charles immediately recognized the political implications of that. That could be a way of working around the French blockade of the St. Lawrence, gaining access to the interior of the continent, undercutting French trade, and perhaps finding the route to the Orient, which everyone was always looking for back then, the fabled Northwest Passage. And so in 1670, the British crown granted a royal charter to the newly formed Hudson's Bay Company. And what that document promised was a total monopoly over all the land that surrounded Hudson's Bay and any rivers that drained into that bay, which is about a third of modern Canada. It gave them the right to exploit all the natural resources of this land, including furs and minerals, and the exclusive right to trade with the indigenous inhabitants. The actual land that was granted to them was absurd. I mean, it was just monstrous. The entire enormous area, which they had no maps of, and which no European had ever really even set foot in, 
was given to the Hudson's Bay Company for its exclusive use. And they called this area Prince Rupert's Land, named after King Charles's nephew, which is a much nicer gesture than any uncle's ever done for me. Now, it's important here to dwell on a few essential points. First off, there's the obvious question as to why a British monarch thought that he had the right to give away land that was occupied by numerous other nations. That's a bit hubristic if you ask me. And then there's the issue of what this monopoly actually meant. And why did the British crown believe it was in their interest to grant it? Well, Britain, and frankly a lot of Western Europe, was experiencing a bit of monopoly madness at the time. Royal charters granting the exclusive right to trade in one part of the world or another were being given out like candy. You have the East India Company, which would one day become the primary vehicle for British colonization of the subcontinent. There's the Royal African Company, which was wholly owned by the British Crown and kidnapped and shipped more West African slaves to the Americas than any other entity. And sure, these monopolies were granted in order to make money, but almost always, they also had political agendas. It was a, a way for governments to sort of tap private capital to achieve political objectives. And the payoff to the private investors was to grant them a monopoly. As long as you put up your money to do it, we're going to make sure that no one from our own country, at the very least, can compete with you on this once you discover something valuable. For the Hudson's Bay Company, that political agenda included searching for the Northwest Passage. That was even in their original charter, that they were obliged, I would say, to at least devote a little effort to searching for this great mythical waterway, which was going to be the source of everyone's wealth. But according to Stephen Bound, unlike the Royal African Company, which was clearly an evil venture right from the start, the Hudson's Bay Company's early years were much more benign. The company consisted of a small number of poorly manned trading forts around Hudson's Bay that were only periodically resupplied. Because of the distance, I mean, it's hard for us to conceive right now, for example. Those ships leaving London were very small. They had to spend weeks or two months crossing the Atlantic Ocean, assuming that all went well and scurvy didn't get them or a storm or a shipwreck didn't smash the thing to bits. And they get sucked to their doom in the frigid waters. I mean, these things happened all the time. When the ship arrives there and deposits them on the stony windlass shore of the bay and then has to leave right away so they don't get frozen in and, and die. I mean, those people are kind of left on their own. They're at the whim of the locals, essentially, who in this case happen to be the coastal Cree people. And for many years, the relationship between the Hudson's Bay Company and local indigenous nations was based on collaboration and mutual respect. From the very beginning, the company was integrated into those societies. They learned the language. Most of the people signed on for at least seven-year terms. Many of them spent their entire lives there. So that's a, one of the misconceptions, I think, that's out there is that the company is often presented as a, a giant tectonic British monopoly with a bunch of British soldiers wearing red uniforms going and shooting people and controlling everything. Absolutely not true. In all the different trades that were, were functioning there and the hunters and the guides, most of the people who worked within that enterprise were indigenous or of mixed heritage. That's why the company was as much a, a cultural entity as a business entity. And it was only through the goodwill and good relations of those people that their business enterprise was successful. The European traders at the HBC forts only formed a small part of the network of trade. For a good hundred years, the retail aspect of the trade, let's call it the, the interior retail aspect of the trade, was not managed by the company at all. 
but was managed by a series of transportation logistics businesses run by Indigenous entrepreneurs, specifically starting with the Cree, who would control access to all the goods and services that the company was able to offer and be the ones that provided those goods to the people further inland. A whole series of people were managing giant business circuits. And they would do the trip for themselves over a period of years, do all the trade with all the different people, collect up all the furs that they could, and giant flotillas of dozens and dozens of canoes would descend upon a company's fort all at once, conduct a massive bit of trade, trying to negotiate better deals by having a bulk quantities of furs, and, and they would do all the trade. They would take all the goods and leave in those flotillas and slowly distribute them according to the contracts that they had made. And essentially, they, they were using the company's outposts on Hudson's Bay as wholesale distribution centers while managing the retail aspect of the trade themselves. And this was how the Hudson's Bay Company largely operated in its first hundred years of existence, as one spoke in a vast trading network that covered much of North America. But that was not to last, because the next century, would bring about radical change. The Hudson's Bay Company ostensibly had a monopoly over the fur trade in this region, but that was only true on paper. And to help tell this part of the story, we've brought back one of our favorite Commons guests. My name is Jean Taye, and I am the author of The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. I'm a Métis lawyer. I am also the great-grandniece of Louis Riel. Despite the Hudson Bay Company's royal monopoly, French fur traders, the Courier des Bois, continuously ventured into the Northwest to trade furs. After all, why should they care what some British monarch wrote in a piece of paper? The French were always after them. Even in the 1670s, the French were trading through there all through the 1700s and the 1800s. So I, I think they had a monopoly in name only. By the late 1700s, those traders would come together to threaten the Hudson's Bay Company's very existence. This was the Northwest Company. That was a dynamic, well-financed entity, very aggressive, with a lot of autonomy given to their traders. So a very different business model than the sort of the plodding, bureaucratic Hudson's Bay Company would, would just sit there and maintain good relations with people and just kind of slowly, under the radar, keep churning out their dividends every year. The Northwest Company said, no, we want to aggressively go and take over all that territory, drive the Hudson's Bay Company out of business and claim all the best furs for ourselves. So the Northwest Company, actually within a very short period of time, had taken over the majority of the fur trade, driving the Hudson's Bay Company into a much smaller position than themselves. And that led to war. And not some kind of trade war. I mean, literal war. It was a brutal, brutal competition. And there were, in fact, murders. There were people who were starved out. There was, it was vicious like actual battles, where they'd be shooting at each other, ambushing each other's supply routes with cannons placed above the river system, sort of blasting each other's canoes out of the water and trying to steal each other's furs and, and you know, maybe murdering each other's employees. It was vicious cutthroat competition. By this point, the French had lost the Seven Years' War, and so Quebec was part of the British Empire. And the British had no interest in allowing this chaos to continue, especially at a time when they feared that the Americans might use it as an excuse to invade. 
And so they took those two companies and they said, no, we're going to amalgamate you. We're essentially forcing you together to stop the battle and prevent Americans from taking over the land. I mean, this is one of the great preoccupations of the British government for the next you know, several generations after that, throughout most of the 19th century. What can we do to prevent Americans from claiming everything? And so here, once again, we can see that the commercial monopoly was serving a political end, namely to keep the Americans out. And that too is a theme that's going to come up a lot in this season. The fear of American domination used to justify monopolies. Once the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company are merged under HBC's banner, the era of true monopoly begins. The monopoly was ineffective, especially when the Northwest Company was operating, right? They were like the scrappy little guys, right, (laughs) who were always nipping at the HBC heels. And because they were flexible and they were adaptable and they weren't so institutionally organized, they could just go anywhere and do anything and they didn't obey any rules, right? (laughs) So, So it made them incredibly effective at undercutting any idea of a monopoly. So then they get merged in 1821, and that changes everything. The Hudson Bay Company then doesn't have to worry about competition anymore from Canada. Rival American fur companies were formed, but within British territory, HBC reigned supreme. And it came to be led by a man who would not only bring the company to the zenith of its power, but also turn it into the brutal colonial machine that many people now associate it with, George Simpson. George Simpson is one of the nastiest characters, I think, to stride the pages of Canadian history. I don't think there's very much you can say about him as a person that leans to the positive side. Well, let's just say Simpson himself was a racist. He got his initial start in life working in the sugar trade, perhaps with the slave industry in the Caribbean. And he took some of those unsavory attitudes with him when he came out to this new posting. Up until this point, many Hudson's Bay employees were indigenous or mixed heritage. But Simpson went out of his way to punish indigenous employees and anyone who had indigenous family. If they weren't showing sufficient deference to him, completely destroy them or ship them off somewhere they didn't want to go or break up families. He began not promoting officers within the ranks of the company if they had Indigenous wives. He began not hiring this sort of mixed heritage children of his senior officers into any kind of senior position. So he began taking anyone with any Indigenous heritage and relegating them to the lower ranks of the company's employees. And this is the era of the company that a lot of people have in their mind of this enormous, tectonic, powerful monopoly that can micromanage and control people's lives. That is the era of George Simpson's era of the company. Under Simpson, the Hudson's Bay Company was no longer just a trading company. It was the governing colonial authority. The company was a fur trading monopoly, but it was also the police, the courts, and the executioner. But a new force was emerging in the Northwest that would go on to challenge the company's power and eventually break its monopoly, the Métis Nation. The Métis are now a force to be reckoned with. The Métis were descendants of French fur traders who had married indigenous women, who were primarily Ojibwe, Cree, and Saltu. But over decades, their children emerged as an independent people, a separate nation of their own. 
The Métis Nation had already won a battle against the company and settlers from Scotland at the Frog Plain in 1816. But by the time George Simpson was dominating Prince Rupert's land, the Métis were bristling against the restrictive monopoly at the company. The Hudson Bay Company in the 1820s up to the 1860s, I would say, is in full flower under Simpson. And there is an attempt by them to double down on their on their monopoly. And they regard the Métis as the biggest thorn in their sides. The Hudson Bay Company thinks they're thieves and and that they're breaking the law. The Métis just go, no, we're free traders, man. That's all we are. We're just free traders. The Hudson's Bay Company punished any Métis who were found to be trading goods to anyone but the company. They even pick up one guy and take him up to York Factory, I think it is, and they're going to deport him to England, which is weird because he's not even English. That was the threat because he had furs that hadn't gone through the Hudson Bay Company system. So they were starting to search the Métis houses for furs. They were insisting that they would only buy furs from the people who actually captured the furs. So that's cutting out the Métis, who were pretty much good middlemen on this sort of fur trade chain of how the furs moved around the Northwest. The conflict came to a head in 1849, when four Métis men were charged with the illegal trading of furs. The Hudson Bay Company has its own court. It's staffed by its own employee who's the judge. The prosecutor is another employee. And it's a civil company, a corporation, laying a almost criminal charge against traders, right? So it's a bizarre thing. It's just riddled with conflict and bias. And there's nothing fair about the way this is going. The Métis, 400 of them, come across from St. Boniface on little boats across the river and surround the courthouse, and they're all armed. So the Hudson Bay Company court is going on inside there with 400 people who have guns around the edges of the court. So the Hudson Bay Company realizes that they, they're in trouble. So they do find the guys guilty of breaking their trading monopoly, but they give them the furs back. <laughs> and they say, no, 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 no penalty because of the 400 men surrounding them. Uh, no penalty. We just wanted to show that our monopoly is real. But of course, the minute they declare that there's no penalty, the Métis take that as a victory. They go outside and say, le commerce est libre, right? You know, free trade. And we won. And that's it. They broke that monopoly that day. It's just broken. After that, the Hudson's Bay Company was unable to enforce their monopoly on the fur trade. The tension between the company and the Métis Nation began to dissipate, but what's clear is that the HBC was a spent force. In 1869, two years after Canadian Confederation, the Hudson's Bay Company sold off its territory to the Dominion of Canada. The attitude was that as Canada was to Great Britain, the Northwest should be to Canada, sort of like a, a sub-level of colonial control. And um, the country of Canada took over those Hudson's Bay Company lands and said that since they were a monopoly, they went as if it was a, a standard real estate transaction with no encumbrances upon the title, signed a few documents as if the company owned all this land. The Hudson's Bay Company began with the British Crown granting it an immense parcel of land that it had no real right to or the ability to control. And its monopoly ended 
with it selling that same parcel of land right back to the crown. So what is this strange story? Tell us about the nature of monopolies. Well, monopolies exert both economic power and political power. And politicians will tolerate them or even encourage them for many reasons, especially because they can be useful in serving some kind of political end. In the case of the HBC, those ends included searching for the Northwest Passage and then eventually exerting colonial control over a huge swath of North America. These mercantile monopolies with royal charters, like the Hudson's Bay Company or the East India Company, ended when industrial capitalism became dominant. But new, even more powerful monopolies were lurking just around the corner. Even after the Hudson's Bay Company sold Prince Rupert's land to Canada, it didn't mean it was done with monopoly. For many years, the HBC engaged in rampant real estate speculation, selling off land on the path of that other great Canadian monopoly, the Canadian Pacific Railroad. And all the way until the 1980s, the HBC used its economic power to control the lives of indigenous peoples, especially in the North. They continued to buy furs from trappers at cutthroat rates and then charge indigenous people absurd amounts of money for staple goods. And because HBC trading posts were often also the post office, HBC managers controlled communication with the rest of the world. If you got a check from the government, the manager could force you to cash it right there so you could only purchase HBC goods. In the 1970s, there were accusations that they would burn any letters from rival fur purchasers in order to protect their monopoly. The company finally gave up the fur trade and its northern trading posts in 1987. But it proved that it knew how to play the game of modern monopoly just as well as anyone else. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Stephen Bown, Jean Taye, Martin DeFalco, Willie Dunn, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLand.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional reporting by Noor Azria. Our production coordinator is Andre Pruhl. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, You'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. 
click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.